2023, this is, this is New Year's Day, Eve, or Eve Day, um, and a, as you know, I mean, if you, there's lots of lists and best ofs and words of the year and people of the year, and, and I, was, I was interested to see Time Magazine's Person of the Year this year, interesting choice. Uh, her name is Taylor Swift, uh, and it is the, the year of the Swifty, okay? I hear some whoops out there. Uh, and uh, there actually was another picture with her with a cat, but I didn't use that one. I thought that was a little not good for Sunday morning. But, um, and, and I, I, I liked, I don't know, I, 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 I like to pay attention to famous people. And the reason I like to pay attention to famous people is I like to figure out what makes them tick. And I, 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 I read a really interesting article about Taylor Swift uh, this year, recently, and and it was by a guy who's not a Christian at all. And, and the title of the, 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 the article is, Why Does Taylor Swift Want More? Now, again, if you've paid attention, she's had all these mega concerts all over the world. Uh, do you realize of, of downloading of songs in one year? She had the most, by the way. Uh, 26 billion downloads of her songs. Uh, do you realize that, um, that, that she's a billionaire, and she has her own plane, and she's 34 years old? Huh? I mean, T Taylor Swift has a lot. And, and so this guy was asking the question, why does Taylor Swift want more? And, and here's what he said. My question is, for what? What does she want that she does not already have? What need could she fill that she hasn't already been filled? Hasn't already been filled. She has more of everything than almost any human being who has ever lived. Why does she need more than more? <laughs> and if she doesn't feel like she can quit all that uphill clawing, how can any of the rest of us? And this contributes to my basic confusion, he writes, over why she or other people in her position. And by the way, I don't want to bash Taylor Swift. This, is, can, this could be written about any person in her situation in our world, okay? It, why any other person in her position might feel such deep need to continue to strive and excel and fight their way higher up the totem pole when they're already at the top. Yes, yes, more money. You can always make more money, but she'll always have more than she can ever spend. So more money for what? And for who? And to buy what? More fame for what? To achieve what? Because if everything Taylor Swift has is not enough for her, how can any of the rest of us ever be content with what we have? It's a bleak world, he writes, if Taylor Swift wakes up every morning and thinks to herself, God, is this all there is? It's New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve day. I, I feel like I'm a mountain climber on this day. I feel like I've reached the summit of the year, and I have a 360-degree view of life right now. We all do on this day. We, we have the opportunity to look back, the old man checking out 2023, at all the twists and the turns of our lives, all the, all the mountains and all the valleys, 
all the things that happened we never expected. And we can be grateful as Christians, as we said. But we can look back and we can think about all the things we're grateful for. But, but, but we can also turn the other direction and look at that new year, the baby, 2024. We don't know what's going to happen. None of us can see that road. We may have some predictions. Uh, we may have some plans and some goals and dreams and hopes but we don't know. And, and it seems to me, as I thought about standing on this precipice, on, on this summit of the year, looking back and looking forward, that, that I'm actually standing in the exact same spot. I'm looking back and I'm, I'm looking forward with the exact same perspective. You see, what I'm grateful for and what I'm hopeful for it's coming from the same place. It's coming from the same question. And here's the question. How do you define the good life? How do you know when your life is worth living? We pull out a measuring tape to decide if we've won at life, and if we have, we're grateful, and that's what we're hoping for. We have a rubric that we consider to use to, to measure and define what makes life worth living. That's the same question behind what we're grateful for and what we're hoping for. What is the good life? And, and, and can I just be honest? It's a very biblical question. The Bible is filled with discussions about that question. Now, the vocabulary may change. Instead of asking what the good life is, the Bible tends to ask it this way. What is the blessed life? And the Bible is very clear about that. In fact, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, where the writer addresses the blessed life and how we're to measure and pursue the blessed life. Um, I have to, this is my favorite psalm. It is the introductory psalm for the rest of the book. Most commentators say that. That, this, that. that the psalmist is telling us what he's about to do and all the different writers for the next 149 psalms. And it comes from this foundation. So, so let me read this for you. Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and it's on his law that he meditates day and night. This blessed man, he, he's like a tree. He's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. By contrast, the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading 
in the study of His Word. And I, I think we can take at least from this psalm three characteristics of the blessed life today. Three characteristics. Number one, the blessed life is a discerning life. Number two, the blessed life is a meditating life. And number three, the blessed life is a flourishing life. Let's work through those together. First, number one, the blessed life is a discerning life. The one who's living the good life, she knows the correct rubric for the good life. Now, in order to really understand what the psalmist is doing, I want to take you back to the beginning, back to Genesis 1 to 3. And I almost always do that do this in my sermons because it's so foundational. We just need to remind ourselves that, that there is something that starts in those first three chapters. It just, it's woven in throughout the rest of Scripture. And if you remember those, those, first two, those first three chapters, the first two start out with God designing creation. Right? He, he designs His world. He designs His image bearers. He designs us and he, he shows us how we are to live our lives underneath Him and relate to Him and relate to each other and relate to creation. He gives us the way to live the good life. He gives us a rubric. In fact, He said it's good. It's very good. But yet in Genesis 3, Satan offers another way, another rubric, another design. He says the better life to Eve is not the life you're living in Genesis 1 and 2. The better life is the one without God, the one with me. In fact, this is how he says it in chapter 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die if you disobey God, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And what Satan does and his first move against God's creation is he goes after God's design and rubric, and he flips the script. And what he does is see, he says to, to, to Eve and to Adam, he goes, if you want to know how to live your life, don't listen to God's rubric, listen to mine. You see, God's rubric, Genesis 1 and 2, it's very confining. It's, it's oppressive. Those rules that he makes, he's keeping you from a better life. My life, if you come my direction, it's freeing. You won't be enslaved anymore to that God. You'll be, you'll be free. His way, God's way, someone else is calling the shots in your life. You like that? You come my direction, you can be in control. It's all yours. You decide how to live your life. If you go God's direction, oh, that's boring. Come on. Come over here. I have the exciting life. I have everything to offer you. This is the bad life, and this is the good life. That's how the Bible starts with the question, what's the blessed life and what's the cursed life? Do we live a life based on the designer's instructions, or do we live our life? It's not. And we've been having that debate ever since. We've been having that choice ever since. And that's what the psalmist picks up on. He's picking up on that debate. What is the good life? And he tells us that the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He right away says the blessed man doesn't listen to Satan's script. He dismisses it. I love the poetic progression. You go from walking with the wicked to standing with the wicked. Finally, you're sitting with the wicked. You're just increasing your hang times, what you're doing. 
taking it all in, soaking it all in. And I, I have to think when the psalmist is writing, the people hung most often at the city gates. That's where all the Illuminati, the hoity-toity, the movers and the shakers they were at the city gates, and they were espousing life and commenting on it. And, and I can't help but think the psalmist is saying, don't listen to those wicked guys. They're not, they're not telling you the way to live. And, and don't, don't stand and sit with them. And, and then I started to think to myself, well, well we don't really have city gates. <laughs> what, what would be in the psalmist's mind if he were writing to us? And I think he'd be talking about this. <laughs> Talk about walking and standing and sitting with voices influencing how you live your life. Is there anything more influential right now? Now, of course, I'm not talking about this, right? I'm talking about the people behind it, the people that designed it, the architecture even, and then the voices that come through it. Um, adjectives used to describe this dominating these are not my adjectives, by the way. Reorienting. Conditioning. And again, that's what the psalmist is saying. Walking, standing, sitting. And the effects of how I spend my time, how I feel about life, how I decide to live my life. You see the phone and what the psalmist is saying. It's a voice. It's a heart-shaping tool. It's a heart-shaping tool. It's where we walk and we stand and we sit. I, I you know, I, because I teach in college and m my students now that I have grew up with the phone, right? So I, I think it's important that we need to talk about it. And it's, by the way, I'm not saying the phone's evil, okay? I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's the most influential voice in our life right now. So we better think about it. And, and, and so I read articles, you know, all the time about it. I, I saw one recently, not a Christian magazine. Okay, so don't, don't be, it's not preacher bashing, okay? And, and, and so this guy called the title of his, of his article about the phone, The Great Malformation, A Personal Skirmish in the Battle for Attention. There is so much loaded in that phrase, but that's what, that's what the song, the battle, who you're going to give your attention to. Who you're going to give your attention to. And this guy Talbot Brewer, he was actually talking about child-wearing. And he talked about parents and social media, and he said, these days, parents have surrendered child-rearing to the platforms that dominate the attention industry. TikTok, and Facebook, Instagram, and so on. And he's, and he's saying, we better get a grip on this. Who's raising our kids? <laughs> he says, in our world, the corporations own and determine the culture, right? They shape our preferences and are forming or not forming our conception of the good. That voice is coming through all the time. What's good and what's not? The blessed man doesn't do, listen to that. The blessed man doesn't listen to that. Rather, the blessed man inter internalizes the values of God. He internalizes the values of God. Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Discernment 
blessedness comes through delighting in God's design. Now, when, when, when the psalmist talks about the law of the Lord, in fact, a lot of wisdom literature, they'll use that phrase, and don't just think Ten Commandments. Now, that is a law of the Lord, but he's really using it for shorthand to talk about the whole Scripture, okay? The whole of Scripture. In fact, like in Psalm 119, he goes, I will meditate on your precepts. I'll fix my eyes on your ways. I'll delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Or the... Solomon in Proverbs says, My son, keep my words. Treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching okay, as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. The law of the Lord is a synonym for God's word. It's a synonym for the user manual that God has given us to help us live out Genesis 1 and 2. He didn't leave us adrift. He's given us voice, the voice to counteract the other voices. But it's up to us to meditate on it and to delight in it. The blessed man does that. He knows the blueprint that's from a designer who made him. <laughs> I, I don't have kids anymore. I have, I should, let, me, let, me just, let me rephrase that. <laughs> oh, oh, my, oh ah, no, no. I don't have kids at home anymore. Okay, and so when Christmas comes, I don't have to use a user's manual to put things together. I should make a little, you know, I don't, okay, anyway, you know, right? And it tells you how to put it together. And because none of us men like to look, use that, we think we know better, they actually start a quick guide, okay, to how to put it together. And now they're going to start a quick guide to the quick guide to how to start together. But but, what we know, right, it works right, we've got to follow directions, we've got to follow the manual. God has not left us without the manual, the blueprint. The blessed man, is, he's a discerning person. Not the wicked, but the manual. Which brings us to point number two. The blessed life is a meditating life. See, I, I'm not trying to get you, I'm not trying to get you to smash this, right? To smash the voices. I just want you to replace them. And you replace them by digging into this, the true voice. And then you won't pay attention to those voices telling you the other ways to live your life. You meditate. His delights in the law of the Lord, he meditates day and night. What you delight in is what you meditate on. What you meditate on is what you delight in. It's the way it works. What you delight in, you meditate on. The blessed man he delights in the word of the Lord. Now you think, Scott, don't start talking about meditation and biblical meditation. I, I, that's for the monks. That's the guys that go out there in the middle of Bohemia to this cabin and just sit in a cell all night reading their Bibles. No, 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 no. Okay, I, I, I wanted you to flush that out of your system. We all meditate. In fact, here's a great quote. When people tell me they don't know how to meditate, this lady wrote, I reassure them by asking, can you worry? If they know how to worry, they know how to meditate. Answer, we all meditate already. (laughs) If you know how to obsess and get anxious, congratulations, you know how to meditate. If you know how to daydream, 
to savor the pleasures of life, you know how to meditate. If you know how to play out the worst-case scenario in any situation, you know how to meditate. If you know how to keep score and stay bitter about the past, meditate. If you know how to nurse or nurse resentments and keep feeding them enough oxygen by replaying the tapes, then you know how to meditate. We all meditate. The question isn't, do we meditate? The question is, upon what do you meditate? Biblical meditation is a redefinition of biblical engagement. If you took away one line from this, this message today, I want it to be that one. Because I think that's a good challenge for 2024. You know, I mean, this is the December 31st sermon. You've got to talk about New Year's resolutions, and in fact, it's good. Right? It's, a, it's important for us to reflect on our lives and, and what we're doing and how we're living our life and how, how we can be better. And, and, and I just want you to think about this. How you engage Scripture and how you will in 2024. Meditation is a redefinition of that. It, as one writer said, meditation goes beyond hearing and reading and studying and even memorizing as a means of taking in God's Word. Meditation is an intensification of the Word. Taking the old magnifying glass, right, to the sun and it's in a convex lens taking all those rays and, and, and pointing them down at the heat of our lives so we can feel the intensity. Miles Coverdale was a translator of the Bible into English, one of the first ones back in 1535. Here's how he translated Psalm 1-2. He delighteth in the law of the Lord and he exerciseth himself in his law, both day and night. That's what meditation is, exercising ourselves. Meditation is simple, but not simplistic, and it's not easy. The Bible assumes that all people meditate. So our calling is to use this ruminating human capacity for God's design. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this, Why do I meditate? Because I'm a Christian. Therefore, every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply in the knowledge of God's Word and Holy Scripture is a lost day for me. Redefine what biblical engagement is. One of the uh, powerful things about Scripture is that, you know, even though I, I, I use the uh, analogy of a user's manual, it's not a user's manual. It's not how it, it's designed. It's, it's not even a textbook, even though I teach Bible classes, right? The, 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 the Bible is actually filled with different genres, and more than half are stories. And, and, and what happens, you find out in Scripture, is that a lot of times, rather than specifically step-by-step teaching us how to do something, it will show us how to do something. And we'll use those stories to do that. I think the best story to use to think about meditation 
is to go to the person of Jesus himself. Jesus lived the Old Testament. That's all, that's all the Bible he had. He, he, if you don't understand the influence of the Scripture in his life, you, don't under, you will not understand his teachings. Now you think, well, of course, he's God. Well, wait a second, okay? He's fully God, but he's also fully man. And what did we just celebrate last week? Right? He came as a baby. Right? He didn't come as a fully formed adult. <laughs> and that, that's one of the just wows of Christianity, right? That the Son of God came as a baby. And, and it says in Luke chapter 2 that he developed, that, that, he, that he increased in wisdom and in stature, with favor with God and man. And part of that development was learning the Word of God, just like we have to do. And so when, when you get to his three years of teaching and interaction, you have the people, the Jews in John 7, who marveled saying, how is this man, how is it that this man has learning because of his knowledge of the Bible when he has never studied? It amazed them. I mean, I, I hate to break it, but he didn't go to Cedarville and he didn't have a Bible minor. All right? I mean, he didn't have that. He, didn't, he wasn't a rabbinical student. But yet he knew the Bible so well, they were amazed. He uses the Old Testament, 17 different stories of the Old Testament to illustrate his teachings. He quotes from memory 18 different Old Testament passages, 14 different Old Testament books. Jesus meditated. And if you really want to know what somebody's meditating on and what's forming their view of life, find out how they respond to pressure. Anytime we have stress, how we respond tells us what voices we're listening to. I can think of two particular cases in Jesus' life. Right after uh, he was baptized, right at the beginning of his ministry, he, 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 he meets out in the wilderness with, with Satan, right? 40 days and 40 nights. And, 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 and he has three temptations, right? Here's the third one, Matthew chapter 4. Um, Again, the devil took him, Jesus, to the very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Stop there. Commentators talk a lot about the similarity of Jesus' temptation to Genesis 3 and Eve and Adam's temptation. Because what's going on? Same thing. Satan's telling or challenging Jesus with, hey, <laughs> don't listen to your father. You see all this? Look out. Cheers. <laughs> Just follow me. Cheers. You can have it. You want the good life? Cheers. Does Jesus respond like Eve? Hmm. Verse 10. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. That's a pretty good lie. But he doesn't stop there. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And him only shall you serve. That's a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. When Jesus was confronted with the temptations of Satan, he immediately gave him back the words of the Lord. He knew the word. 
he meditated and he responded to temptation with that word. But it's not just temptation. It was intense pain and stress. And you go back to the cross in Matthew 27. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. It's in our most stressful times that we have to ask where we go for our comfort. What script do we use? What voices do we listen to? Jesus listened to this. He's a man that meditated. A tangible example. Now, I, I can't, I can't you know, leave today without giving you some how-tos and practical tips. I mean, I, that's, and, and I want to do that. And, and actually, this is where, in some ways, this whole sermon began as I was thinking about this re-engagement of Scripture in my own life. Um, um, I don't know about you. I, 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 it may be an aging thing, but I'm not going to look at people because they'll think I think you're aging, so I'll just look up and ask, you know, do you wake up at 3 in the morning? <laughs> uh, and I'm not, not to go to the bathroom, okay? But I, I, I find myself, and it actually is always 3 o'clock, I do not know why, having a conversation in my head. But really, it's not a conversation. It's a monologue. There's some voice in my head, some other self of me, that's talking to me, oftentimes accusing me, and questioning my very existence. Why do you matter? That's often the thing. You know, when, when, when you're 20, you're hoping to matter. That's your, that's your question. How do, will I matter? And when you're in middle life, you're saying, do I matter? But when you're aging, you're asking, did I matter? And I find that monologue not very helpful at 3 in the morning. It's not a good voice. I hate it. But I want you to know something that God has taught me, and just not to promote myself, but just to share with you. God has helped me that about 7.30 in the morning, after I've had my shower and having my coffee, uh, that's when I, I, I read my Bible and I pray. And I learned a number of years ago that the best way to do that is to meditate on Scripture. And the best way to do that is to have a conversation with the Lord. I'm not reading my Bible and then praying. No. I'm reading my Bible, whatever passage is for that day, and, and I'm asking in that passage, what is God talking about in here? What is the lesson in here about Him and about His world? And, and I'm clinging to that, and then I respond to that in a conversation with prayer. And I thank Him for that, and, and I confess where I'm failing in that, and I request based on that, and I'm having this conversation, and guess what? I'm meditating, and guess what? That three o'clock monologue is long gone, because I've been meditating on His Word. But then, lately, I've realized by noon, it's gone. <laughs> I felt good at eight o'clock. I think I worked through it a little bit. At noon, I'm back in the same questions again. And something has helped me, and actually, it's a really nice little book by James Wilhoyt, a former professor at Wheaton, he's retired, called Abide, 
putting down roots into the word of life. And he's just talking about meditating. And he's talking about interacting and ruminating on Scripture. And he has a phrase here that's been really helpful. He has a phrase called anchor prayers. Anchor. Think Navy. <laughs> anchor prayers. And, and, and what he does is he, he connects this concept to Paul's challenge of unceasing prayer. You know, in five different churches, Paul tells them to pray without ceasing or be constant in prayer. And I don't know about you, but I always think, what is that all about? You know, again, I'll be back to the monks. They're just praying all the day. And, oh, how? and, and James Wilhoy says, you know what? One of the ways you can be constant in prayer is to take a verse that God has used in your life, maybe that morning, and anchor yourself in it. And then as you respond throughout the day to life, that verse informs how you respond. That's how you can pray without ceasing that way. And I, that makes a lot of sense. And so not long after that, I, I, I was reading in Isaiah um, 26. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God's an everlasting rock. And again, it's, I'm just reading the passage for me for that day. I'm not, it, and it's there, and I think, hey, that's, that's really helpful. And so, now, to show you I'm not bashing phones, I put it on a little app, so I had it in my phone, so I could look it up, because I can't memorize anymore, I'm old, okay? And so I, I, I put it in there, and I, I, and I put down anchor verse, and so I had it in my to-do list. That's where I put it, my to-do list. And, 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 and I'm not kidding you, that week... I was in my, 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 my building at, back at Cedarville, and I, I, I came across somebody who isn't usually there, and I was talking to him, and I found out that that person was there because they were going upstairs to ask a colleague of mine to do something for them. And my immediate reaction was, but I could do that for you. And you know me. You don't know that person that well. And I'd really like to do it for you. Are you not asking me because there's a problem with me? Is there something wrong with me? Spirit said, Scott, look at your anchor verse. I looked at it. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Hmm. Does God have a plan here that I don't know about? Does God have a bigger picture than I have? Do I trust Him for that? Am I okay with that? Huh? Anchorless. More recently, I, I, I was around a friend, a, a loved one, who is, I found out, really, really going through a tough time. Uh, I didn't know the depths of it. And I, I just kind of found out. And, you know, my, my response was, I got to fix this. I don't want them to feel like this. I got to change the circumstances so they'll feel better about their life. I've got to change it. I got to fix it. Spirit said, anchor verse. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on he, you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. 
can God handle that person's life better than I can? Can God control the circumstances in their life to bring about what's best for His plan and their life? Do I trust Him? That's anchor verses. It's meditation. It's praying without ceasing. Second practical one is actually one we're already participating in today. And I, I hadn't thought about this that much. But the idea that we learn to meditate as a group. Do you ever think about that? That what we do here on Sunday morning is a group meditation? That what the worship band is doing every morning is leading us in a liturgy, a practice of meditating on the Word? Phil often uses this four-step motif. We think about a holy creator God. We think about a broken, sinful people that we are. Then we think about the redemption we have through Christ. And then we have a response of worship and mission. Every week, we are led through that liturgy. And what we're doing is we're meditating together. Right? Any of you who's ever tried to run a marathon, right? You, running groups are great, right? You, you, you encourage each other. You help each other. And, 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 and our meditation, our challenge to be a meditating person, we do it together. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. So a blessed life, a discerning life, a blessed life, a meditating life. And lastly and quickly, a blessed life is a flourishing life. A blessed life is a flourishing life. Verse 3. The blessed man, he, he's like a tree. He's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But being the poet that he is and the communicator that he is, the psalmist brings us back to where he started. He doesn't forget the wicked. Verse 4, but the wicked are not so. They're not a tree. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The blessed life, that, that, that man, he, he's like a tree. <laughs> he, uh, but the wicked life is chaff. Chaff's, you know, just dust. It's, it's, it's what's left over when you thrash the wheat and thresh the wheat. and it, it's, you know, it's not much substance to it. The, the, the blessed life like a tree, it's planted. It's stable. It's nourished. It's going to last. The perishing life has no attachment. I like to ride my bike for exercise. I live out in, close to the country, so I ride my bike out on the country roads. The worst time to ride your bike on the country roads is around October because all the farmers got their combines out there doing what they do to the corn, and it just makes this orange mist that you have to ride your bike through. I should be in L.A., I think. I mean, it's just a, a smog. It's farming smog, and, but it's, it's what's left over. There's no weight to it. The, the blessed life, the tree, 
He's able to withstand the storms of life in any wind of change. But the perishing life is easily blown off course by the slightest bit of turbulence in life. You probably were wondering why I never commented on that Taylor Swift quote. Well, now I am. I, like I said, I like to read articles and, and, and interviews of famous, rich, powerful, athletic people. Because almost every single time, they'll let it slip. It's not enough. It's not enough. See, you and I who don't have what they have, not as powerful as they are, not as talented as they are, we still think if we had that, (sighs) they'd never say it's enough. Why, the guy says, does Taylor Swift need more than more? Because more isn't enough. It's chaff. It's dust. No substance to it. Nothing that, nothing that sticks. <laughs> nothing that, uh, that's, that's a salve to the wounds of life. There's nothing there. And those, they find it out. And it's, 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 it's a bad place to be. And it, it, it makes me think of another guy like that. Uh, Book of Ecclesiastes. Book of Ecclesiastes was written by a guy named Solomon. I, I think you could say that Solomon was the Taylor Swift of Israeli kings. You can quote me on that. I, I came up with that this week. Um, he, I don't know if he could sing, but he had everything that anybody wanted back in that day. All right? So here's what he says about that. He says, chapter 2, Ecclesiastes, verse 9. So I became great. He did become great. And I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. That includes his dad, David. Also, my wisdom remained with me. People from all over the world will come visit him to hear his wisdom. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then he had his Taylor Swift moment. (laughs) I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It was empty. There's nothing there. That's what Satan's offering us, by the way, in Genesis 3. That's what he was offering Jesus. And that's what he's offering us today. Is that what you want? Is that going to give you confidence for 2024? Or is it the law of the Lord? In fact, Solomon doesn't end there. Good news. He ends at the end of the book like this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You want to know how to live the blessed life? You fear God. And you keep His commandments. And you live in Genesis 1 and 2.
and you'll be blessed. A blessed life is a discerning life. A blessed life is a meditating life. And a blessed life is a flourishing life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the clarity of Scripture and for uh, the power of Scripture. I never cease being amazed at how poignant these various parts of Scripture are, whether it's wisdom literature or prophecy or stories of Jesus or epistles. You're telling us again and again in such a patient way that your way is the best way. Your way is the blessed life. Your way is the good life. Help us in these following moments to once again meditate on you. Amen.